crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. It was the smell that awoke Joe Maxson from his unusually heavy sleep. It smelled like something was cooking. Unable to rouse his body, his brain started trying to make sense of things. He was in his guest room in a farmhouse in Laporte, Indiana. The woman at the house must have started cooking breakfast already. But it didn't feel like breakfast time. It felt like it was the middle of the night. With great effort, Maxon forced open his eyes and realized his room was filled with smoke. He pulled himself out of bed, flung open a window, and stuck out his head. The brick house was engulfed. He was about to die. But Maxim wasn't alone in the house, and he didn't want to leave the others behind. He kicked and kicked at the door separating the guest room from the main part of the house, but he couldn't get through. The smoke was thick. Ash filled his lungs. He grabbed a few of his things and raced down the stairs and out the door. Still hoping to save the others, he ran to the barn, grabbed an axe, and began hacking at the front door. But homes in the early 1900s were built a little differently than homes are today, and those doors weren't mass-produced hollow affairs. Maxson couldn't bust through. All he could do was stand back as a crowd quickly gathered to watch the house burn to the ground, with a mother and her three children inside of it. Everyone at the scene, of course, knew the fire was a tragedy. What they didn't know is that it would kick off one of the darkest and most enduring mysteries in American history and set the template for a type of serial-killing woman we call the Black Widow. The woman who had been in the blazing building was born as Brynhild Paulsdatter Storseth on November 11, 1859, in Selbu, Norway. As a kid, neither she nor her family were particularly noteworthy, so there aren't many records related to her childhood. But we do know some things. For example... She was this poor peasant girl from Norway, you know, who had done farm chores from the time she was a little kid. This is Harold Schechter, author of the book Hell's Princess, The Mystery of Belgunis, Butcher of Men, which I read as part of my research. As Schechter wrote, Brynhild and her siblings started working for their farmer father pretty much as soon as they could walk. The young girl would grow up feeding livestock and milking cows. It wasn't a fancy upbringing by any means, and it would seem that Brynhild yearned for something different from a very early age. And she worked hard for it, working as a servant and saving her wages as she dreamed of a better life. At some point, Brynhild's older sister, Nellie, moved to America, the land of opportunity that still sported a new car smell. 
Nellie got married and wrote to Brynhild, who was 10 years her junior, and encouraged her little sister to leave Norway and come to the United States. Brynhild did, traveling by boat for weeks in notoriously filthy conditions. It was no doubt an unpleasant trip, but surely Brynhild considered it a small price to pay in exchange for all the promise of a better life that America seemed to offer. Brynhild arrived in 1881 and did as most immigrants did at the time. She changed her name. No longer would she be Brynhild. Instead, she'd be Bella or Belle. And soon, she'd drop her surname, too, in marriage. Belle married a man named Mad Sorensen in Chicago. Belle's new husband had also been born in Norway. They were married in 1895 when Belle was 36 years old. Belle said she loved kids, but after a few years of trying, she and Mads hadn't gotten pregnant. This seemed to weigh on Belle, who desperately wanted children. She was so desperate for kids, in fact, that when it became clear that another woman, a mom to several kids, was on her deathbed, Belle asked to adopt the woman's youngest child, a baby girl. The woman knew it would be tough for her surviving husband to rear all of their kids alone, so she agreed. She made Belle promise that she would treat the little girl just like she would if she had birthed her herself. And Belle promised, I'll take care of her as my own. So Mads and Belle became parents to an adopted daughter named Jenny Olson. Belle seemed determined to keep that deathbed promise, and Jenny wanted for nothing. She was well cared for, always playing with new toys and wearing nice clothes. Belle seemed to love and dote on the little girl. By all accounts, she had this very powerful maternal instinct. Several years after Jenny's adoption, Belle became a mother five more times, though two of those babies died in infancy. Incidentally, those two had been insured before their deaths. When the surviving babies, Myrtle, Lucy, and Philip, appeared on census data, they're listed as Mads and Belle's natural children, while Jenny is singled out as an adopted child. But the truth is, not everyone believed Belle had actually birthed those babies herself. First of all, she was quite advanced in years when she had them, particularly for that day and age. I mean, nowadays, you know, a woman in her 40s giving birth is nothing, but she would have been quite old. But it wasn't just Belle's age that made people wonder. No one ever seemed to notice she had been pregnant. Also, whenever she got a child, it it always seemed like way bigger than a baby who had just been born. And man, her recovery period after having a baby was unreal. She'd be outside milking cows and running around literally right after the babies arrived. There were rumors that at one point she was a baby farmer. You know, they used to have these things called baby farmers where these women would take in unwanted children for a price and uh, presumably pay, uh, place them with foster parents and so on. Though, you know, some notorious ones obviously killed the kids. Whatever the case, three of those maybe biological children survived their earliest years and grew up alongside Jenny, who was growing up to be a beautiful blonde young lady. Meanwhile, Mads and Belle seemed determined to find success in Chicago, and neither was afraid of the hard work it might take to make that happen. At one point, the couple bought a candy store that they hoped would thrive. Unfortunately, the store wasn't making enough money to stay afloat, and within a year, it became clear that the shop was a bust. Before debtors could come knocking, though, a mysterious fire gutted the place. 
Luckily for the Sorensons, the store had been insured for a hefty sum. In case my sarcasm is too subtle, I'll be more blunt. Bell probably started the fire. I mean, the timing of it was too convenient and the origin too mysterious. As far as historians know, this was likely her first major crime. It was by no means her last. Anyway, Belle and her husband collected the insurance money from the fire, bought a new house with the proceeds, and life seemed to quiet down for a bit. Then something strange happened. After six years of marriage, Mads, Belle's husband, dropped dead. What was even more bizarre was that the day he dropped dead, it just so happened that he had two overlapping life insurance policies, one that was set to expire the next day, and another that had just that day started. So him dying on that specific day meant that Bell pocketed twice as much money as she would have if he died the day before or the day after. What are the odds? Though Matt's family demanded an inquest, Bell was never charged in his death, which the coroner attributed to ongoing heart problems. This is author Teresa Rowe in a documentary called Only Bell, a serial killer from Selbu. Mott's brother wanted to have another autopsy, wanted to have him exhumed and have another autopsy. It was like three or four hundred dollars and they couldn't afford it, so they didn't do it. The mourning wife used that $8,000 in life insurance money, about 250 grand in today's money, to move from Chicago and buy a farmstead in a small Indiana town called Laporte. She found a new husband, too. Peter Gunnis was a Norwegian man who had recently been widowed and left with two children. He was drawn to Belle's farm and obvious wealth, if not her beauty. People, you know, describe her as possessing this sort of mannish quality to her. She was a, a big, powerful woman. Belle became Belle Gunnis, the name that would stick to her in infamy, after she and Peter married on April 1st, 1902, merging their families so that the new farmhouse was home to two adults and six children. And then only five days after the wedding, tragedy struck. Belle had been alone with the kids when Peter's youngest, two-year-old Lydia, died unexpectedly in her care. No one could make sense of it. But child mortality being what it was back then, no one asked many questions. Then, just eight months after the wedding, little Jenny Olson went racing to a neighbor's house crying for help. She told the neighbors, an older couple named the Nicholsons, that her stepdad had fallen and hurt himself. By the time neighbors reached the Gunnis home, Peter was dead. And this couldn't have been written off as a heart attack because Peter was lying face down on the living room floor. His skull had been bashed in and his nose was broken. Absolutely hysterical, Bell described what happened. He had been out in the field plowing all day. And as usual, uh, when he came back from the field, places work boots by the stove to dry them out. And according to Bell's version, he had bent over to get his boots. And when he straightened up, a meat grinder fell on his head and killed him. This raised a lot of suspicions in the minds of her neighbors. The examination of Peter's body did little to quiet those suspicions. This is Lance Geiger, a.k.a. The History Guy, in an episode of his show he did for his YouTube channel. The coroner who examined Gunness's corpse said he also showed symptoms of poisoning. An inquest was held to determine not just the cause of death, 
but also to weigh whether Bell had been responsible for it. Bell's version of events made little sense, but her adopted daughter Jenny testified too, and wouldn't you know it, Jenny's version of events matched Bell's identically, so much so that the cynical jurors wondered if the little girl had been coached. Still, no one could picture Bell as a killer, so the inquest went nowhere. Peter's death certificate states he died because of a subdermal hemorrhage caused by a fractured skull. Under a heading titled Duration, the coroner simply wrote, Don't know. The death was officially determined to be accidental. Peter was, of course, insured, and Bell was the sole beneficiary. Peter's brother was so suspicious of her, though, that he came to check on Peter's only surviving daughter, Swanhild. The brother came to Laporte, and Swanhild seemed to be in decent shape, aside from having been orphaned. I mean, Belle had been caring for her the same as the other children, not like some evil stepmother in a brother's grim tale. Still, something about Belle just bothered Peter's brother, Gustav. After staying at the farmhouse for several days, he one night packed his bags without warning and fled. He took Swanhild with him. In the end... That little girl would be the only child ever in Belle's care to reach adulthood. Soon after Belle Gunness was widowed for a second time, she began searching for new partners. Belle began to put matrimonial ads in Scandinavian newspapers throughout the Midwest, advertising um, herself as this widow with a very, very large, prosperous farm who was looking for a man to come become a partner in the farm with an item matrimony. Belle's ad specified her preference for Norwegian men who responded by the dozens. Finding a widow with a big farm was like winning the lottery in the early 1900s. These men wrote her letters introducing themselves, and Belle wrote back, poorly, in terms of spelling and grammar, apparently. But her replies were so warm and loving that she entranced a number of these suitors. First, she'd question them about finances, because as a responsible woman, she wasn't going to share her prosperous farm with a deadbeat. Her husband-to-be would need to have sufficient means to invest in the land for her to take him seriously. Once she was comfortable, her suitor met that prerequisite. The real seduction began. She would talk about her memories of Norway and promise to make them dishes that were hard to find in America. A lot of these guys were downright homesick, and this sounded fantastic. Belle didn't catfish, exactly, when it came to her appearance, and letters that have survived, she made a point to say, hey, I'm a stout woman and time's not been kind to me, so don't be surprised by that when you see me, but know that I have a big heart and I'm eager to spend my life making you happy. To each of the men, she swore that she had set aside all other replies to her ads. She would call them her dearest friend, implore them not to tell anyone about their connection and make not so subtle suggestive remarks like how it'll be so great when the two of them are alone to make each other happy. After the groundwork was laid, Belle would invite the men, I mean, really more like beg them, to come to Laporte so they could begin their new lives together. And she had a request. She always instructed them to bring their life savings with them. Well, in retrospect, you think maybe it might have raised a few red flags. 
Bell's verbalized reasoning to these men was, if you're really serious about me, you're planning on coming here for good. Why would you leave anything behind if that's the case? To some, she told them to make sure the money was brought as cash and instructed the men on how to sew the bills into their clothing. She would warn, make sure you don't let yourself trust anyone untoward. There are a lot of thieves and scammers in this world. And when the men arrived, Belle would greet them enthusiastically. Meet them at the train station, take them up to the house, feed them lovely Norwegian food and give them the whole homey thing. And the men were like bachelors. They're like, oh my God, this is wonderful. Any lingering doubts the men might have had quickly vanished. This is biographer Sylvia Shepard in the Only Bell documentary. She was exactly what she said she was in these newspapers. She was the owner of a 40-plus acre farm by herself. She had a very small mortgage. She had goats. She had pigs. She had pretty good for a single woman. You know, she was a pretty good catch, with the exception that she was a little hefty. It probably didn't hurt that she liked sex, too. At least that's the picture painted by the few lovers she let live, most of whom were farmhands. Like there was this one guy, Ray Lamphere, who started working for Bell not long after Peter Gunnis died. Lamphere would work throughout the day, running errands, tending the animals, really whatever Bell asked for. And then at night, he'd retire to a guest room in the house. It wasn't long before Bell began sneaking into his room at night. It probably felt a bit sinister to Lamphere the first night, but Bell didn't hurt him. Rather, she whispered sweet nothings and caressed him as he would later testify. He said that she purred like a kitten. When they finished, Belle would go back to her room, and the next day, it'd be like nothing had happened. On Belle's side, anyway. Lamphere started to think that she fancied him a bit, and he began telling folks around town that he'd soon be man of the farm. It was surely confusing to him then, when he'd see men come and stay at the house for a few days, only to abruptly disappear overnight. If anyone asked after the men... She always had a good excuse. They'd gone off to visit a cousin, or they got tired of, you know, they weren't really interested in the job. To her questioning farmhands, she'd often assign a job right around the time of these departures. She'd say she needed a hole dug in the yard to throw away some trash. And could you dig that for me? I'm thinking a hole about six feet long, three feet wide, and four feet deep. The farmhands got to digging. They never saw the holes being filled. Oftentimes, the men who visited left behind their trunks when they departed. Sometimes, Belle would hand off the abandoned clothes to men she knew in town. And what use did she have of a man's wardrobe anyway? All of this continued for years. Belle's kids started growing up. Jenny, the adopted daughter, in fact was readying to be sent to school in California. She'd grown to be a beautiful teenager with long blonde hair and pillowy lips. Boys and men were starting to pay attention to her, and a few were disheartened to learn she was being sent away for schooling. Some were downright heartbroken when they showed up at the farm to say goodbye to the girl, only to learn from Belle that Jenny had already left. Their heartbreak would turn to horror when they would learn Jenny's real fate two years later. Belle's web of lies began coming undone around 1907. That's when a man named Andrew Heglian answered one of Belle's matrimonial advertisements. 
Andrew had been born in Norway in 1859 and immigrated to the U.S. at age 20, according to census data. At age 41, he reported he had never been married and worked on a farm that he rented and ran in Clear Lake, South Dakota. As with other men, Belle told him she had nixed all but him as her suitor, and the two wrote back and forth. While Andrew's letters haven't survived, Belle's have. So we know that Belle kept encouraging Andrew, her dearest friend, to come to Laporte, but he was slow in wrapping things up back home in South Dakota. He had a harvest season to finish, and then the winter came, and that's no good for traveling. Weeks turned into months, and months turned into a year. Finally, Belle, in a gentle but firm letter, said, look, make up your mind. Are you coming or not? Andrew apparently didn't want to cut her loose, and so he came. At this point, Lamphere was Belle's lover and had his sights set on owning the farm. And he had no idea why this new guy had shown up. When Andrew Hegelian came, she banished Lamphere from the farm. Lamphere was confused, hurt, angry, you name it. He just couldn't make sense of this. Belle replaced him with a man named Joe Maxson, the guy described in the opening of this story. Meanwhile, Hegelian hadn't followed Bell's instructions to sew his money into his clothing, so the two had to go to a bank to cash a check. That took several days. So Andrew was treated like royalty as he settled into life at the farm. Townspeople recalled seeing him around, always with Bell, including one time when the two showed up back at the bank together to get the cash Andrew was owed. That outing was the last time anyone saw Andrew alive. It wasn't long before Andrew's brother, Ashley, back in South Dakota, began worrying about him. I mean, the two had always been close. In fact, per the census, Ashley owned the farm that Andrew rented. Ashley went through his brother's left-behind belongings and found the letters Bell had written. Then he did some sleuthing and found that Andrew had, in fact, traveled to Indiana, stopping at some family friends' houses along the way. Ashley wrote Bell and asked about his brother, but Bell said he'd already come and gone. She told Ashley that Andrew went looking for another brother, whom he believed was maybe in New York or possibly even back in Norway. She said she hoped he was safe and was sorry she couldn't be of more help. Something about the story didn't sit well with Ashley, so he told Bell in a subsequent letter that he'd be traveling to Laporte soon to see if he could pick up Andrew's trail. While this was happening, Lamphere and Bell were butting heads like never before. Lamphere claimed that Bell owed him back wages, while Bell reported Lamphere to police, saying he was harassing and threatening her. She had him arrested three separate times for allegedly returning to the farm, despite being told not to. Not only that, Bell tried to get Ray Lamphere, her ex-handyman, declared insane. She said that he was silent, quiet, melancholy, restless, seclusive, dull, profane, filthy, and intemperate. She answered no to cheerful, deaf, deformed, hysterical. Here's her signature at the bottom. Eventually, she told police that she was sure Lamphere intended to kill her. On April 27, 1908, she went to her lawyer to update her will. That very night, a fire engulfed the farmhouse, the same fire that farmhand Joe Maxson barely escaped. The blaze continued for hours. When it was finally finished, 
All that was left of the farmhouse were a couple of still-standing brick walls and the charred remains of the basement. As soon as it was safe, the townsfolk started to dig. They were pretty sure Belle and her three kids had been trapped inside. Remember, Belle's fourth child was supposedly in California. But they held out hope that they were wrong, that the mother and babes had somehow made it out of the building and no one noticed their escape. Hours of digging passed, and then a shovel hit something soft. In the rubble of the basement, they found this woman's charred torso and three of Belle's children huddled around the torso. Belle was portrayed in the papers as this wonderful mother of, you know, woke up in the middle of the night, house is on fire, she gathered her children, tried to save them. They all died in this place. Suspicion immediately fell on Ray Lamphere. Belle, just the day before, had insisted he aimed to hurt her, kill her even. And here she was, dead. No way was that a coincidence. When Ray was arrested, his first question was, did they get out alive? That didn't bolster his claims of innocence. Some residents wondered how on earth poor Jenny would handle this awful news. It was right about this time that Ashley Hegelian arrived in Laporte. The big fire had the town abuzz, so he quickly learned that the woman he'd traveled some 750 miles to question was dead. Killed inside the home, Ashley had wanted to search. This seemed awfully convenient, so he grabbed a shovel. He asked Joe Maxson if he knew of any holes that had been dug on the land. Why, yes, Maxson said. I actually dug some up myself not that long ago. Ashley took a shovel to the spot and found the earth was soft there. He started to dig. He didn't have to dig more than three feet before his spade hit something. Peering into the hole, searchers realized they were looking at a dismembered corpse that had been wrapped in a gunny sack and dumped into the hole. They lifted the remains and Ashley found himself staring at the decapitated head of his missing brother. Though decomposition was well underway, Andrew was identifiable. His brother's worst fears had been true. Suddenly, the town was hit with a gruesome realization. Belgunis was a murderess, one who had died without paying for her crimes. Or had she? After searchers uncovered the grisly remains of Andrew Hegelian in a shallow grave, they didn't stop digging. Another body shared that grave, this one the skeletal remains of what appeared to be an adolescent girl. The strand of long blonde hair still attached to the skull suggested that this is where Jenny Olson had been the last two years. She had never gone to California. Searchers inspected Bell's land and found more soft spots in the earth and more bodies beneath them. In all, they found the dismembered remains of 12 bodies, though it was tough to get a clean count because some had been partially disintegrated by lime and others were missing skulls. Sometimes it's reported that she had 40 victims, and that might be true. As with H.H. Holmes, who, by the way, was mentioned in some of the articles about Belle because Holmes's murder castle in Chicago had been discovered just a decade earlier, we will never be sure of the body count. 
Apparently what Belle would do was when one of these victims came to her farm, you know, she would feed them a nice Norwegian meal that was spiked with probably arsenic and then administer a coup de grace by bashing them over the skull with an axe and then drag them down to the cellar and butcher them like farm animals. The mesmerized media gave Belle macabre nicknames. Lady Bluebeard, the Laporte Ghoul, the mistress of the murder farms. Reporters traveled from all over the country, as did average folk drawn by morbid curiosity. Thousands of gawkers descended on the small town. They were running excursion trains from Chicago. You know, it was like spending the day at Disneyland. And they had people selling cake and ice cream and, you know, enterprising youngsters who had dug up animal bones and were selling them as souvenirs. The found remains were put on display in an outbuilding on the farm, which authorities had converted into a sort of makeshift morgue. People with missing fathers and brothers traveled to Laporte and viewed the decaying, reeking remains in hopes of being able to identify their loved ones. Several did. For example, an elderly widower from Wisconsin had told his two sons in May 1907 that he was traveling to Indiana to meet a widow. He was never heard from again. Upon hearing the gruesome tale, his sons, Oscar and Matthew, traveled to Laporte. There, they were shown a skull that still had remnants of their father's unique mustache. They were sure the skull was his. It's interesting just how identifiable someone can be from just their skull, even if there's no tissue or muscle left on it. Which brings us back to the bodies discovered in the farmhouse fire. The one odd feature was the woman's corpse was headless, and there was no sign of a skull or the remains of the head anywhere. So was that bell in the fire? There were some solid reasons to be skeptical. First, the location of the bodies was in the southwest corner of the basement, which on the surface would have made sense because that corner was beneath the home's second floor bedrooms. But furniture from the first floor, the floor beneath the bedrooms, had fallen on top of those bodies and had to be dug through to reach the corpses. How could that be unless the bodies had been in the basement to begin with? And if they were in the basement when the fire started, that would mean... They all hadn't been asleep, as originally theorized. The second issue concerns the body that everyone had assumed was Belle's. Belle was quite a large woman. You know, there are times when she weighed close to 300 pounds. The torso wasn't nearly that big. You know, there were some theories that, you know, it shrank because of the heat, but it just didn't seem likely that it could have shrunk that much. And of course, there was no head. Now, at this point, with serious questions raised about whether that really was Bell's body in the fire, you might think that investigators would reconsider the charges against Ray Lamphere. But nope, that thinking would be wrong. Instead, the sheriff and prosecutor decided to stick their landing. So maybe Bell was a mass murderer. And maybe it's really weird that her skull, which normally would be one of the last parts of a body to burn to cremation, was nowhere to be found. Still, they'd already charged Lamphere with murder, and prosecutors have a hell of a time dropping charges once they're filed. I know firsthand that's true today, and it apparently was true back in 1908 as well. Lamphere was headed to trial. He had an alibi in the early morning hours when the inferno began, but it was kind of a messy one. 
Lamphere, who was in his 30s, had paid a visit to a woman in her 70s, a woman named Elizabeth Smith. She wasn't the most reputable woman in Laporte. She was a Black woman who had apparently been absolutely stunning in her youth. And when she got older, she was rumored to dabble in sex work. And that's what Lamphere was doing at her place that night. Smith vouched for Lamphere, but the sheriff and prosecutor didn't believe her. In fact, Lamphere's own defense lawyers didn't bother to call her to the stand. Instead, the defense argued that the adult corpse in the basement wasn't Belle, but it was rather a domestic worker Belle had recently driven in from out of town. People around town had seen Belle with such a woman who was described as heavy, though not as heavy as Belle. Lamphere's lawyers said that Belle had killed this unnamed woman, chloroformed and poisoned her three children, staged the bodies together in the basement, set the house on fire, and fled before the flames awoke Joe Maxson. The jury had a tough time with this. The news stories about this awful ordeal had gone international, and as such, if Belle were alive, where the hell was she? People reported seeing her all the time, on trains, on boats, out west, up north. And each time the sighting was investigated, it wasn't Belle. How could one of the most notorious women in the world vanish without a trace? Had Belle been the only victim in the fire, maybe the jury would have been content to acquit Lamphere. After all, who really cares if he killed a sadistic mass murderer? But three children died in that fire as well. So shrugging that off wasn't in the cards. The jury decided to go a nonsensical route. They acquitted Lamphere of murder, but they convicted him of arson. He wrote his mother a letter swearing he was innocent and telling her not to worry because at least he could go to bed with a clear conscience as he had done nothing wrong. But his mom had reason to worry. Lamphere had seemed a bit under the weather during the trial, and it turned out he was quite ill. After serving a year in prison, he died of tuberculosis. Lance Geiger again. There's a supposed deathbed confession that has been attributed to Lamphere, wherein he admitted Bell poisoned her would-be suitors during dinner and then dismembered them afterwards. He also said that he had a part in finding the decoy body for Bell to place in the basement to fake her own death. However, the accuracy of this confession has been thrown into doubt because of the sensational nature of the case. The press were grasping at any and every lead to find the truth of the matter and may have concocted the confession to sell more papers. The real truth of what happened to Bell Gunness's farm has remained lost to history. Though not for lack of trying, Lamphere's defense lawyers continued to believe Bell Gunness survived the fire and followed up leads on supposed sightings whenever they could. In 1931, people got pretty excited about a woman arrested in Los Angeles for murder. The woman, named Esther Carlson, was accused of poisoning a man to steal his money, Bell's precise M.O. She was the right age and had a photograph in her belongings of three children, two girls and a boy, which lined up with the kids killed in the 1908 fire. Carlson died while awaiting trial, and two people who'd known Bell traveled to California to view the body, and they said that though this woman was far slimmer than Bell had been, she still looked an awful lot like her. Rumors festered for decades that Carlson and Gunnis were one and the same. But finally, a researcher did some proper digging, and... A further analysis of the records in their past showed that it couldn't be the same person. 
Scientists in 2008 exhumed the charred remains of the woman and three children, hoping to finally crack the case. Their plan was to compare DNA from the woman's bones to DNA lifted from saliva on a letter Bell had sent to see if they could determine once and for all whether Bell really perished in the fire. They also hoped to test the remains of the children, too, to finally learn whether they were Bell's biological kids or if they had been bought or kidnapped. But the DNA was too degraded to make a comparison. The mystery of Belganis lives on. No one knows if she died in that fire or if she lived to scheme again. To research this episode, I dug through newspaper archives and public records. I also read Harry Schechter's book, Hell's Princess, The Mystery of Belganis, Butcher of Men. Huge thanks to Schechter for chatting with me for this episode. I suspect we'll be talking again soon. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 